Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy helps us refocus our worship through John's book of Revelation. We need to be captured by what captured John. Today, worship is marked by familiarity. John's was marked by fear. Today's worship is intended to stroke our emotions, while John's worship experience shattered his self-image and changed his life. It's the Almighty God we worship. When we come into God's presence to worship, our attitude ought to reflect our respect for His holiness. But too many times we're either distracted or all too casual in our approach. Today on Know the Truth, we'll be looking at the book of Revelation to gain a whole new perspective on what it means to be standing in God's presence. This lesson is titled Holy Terror and is part of the series in Revelation called You've Got Mail. Later, I'll tell you about a related resource I think you'll enjoy. Learn more online at ktt.org. Now, with today's message, here's Philip DeCourcy. I'm only going to begin a sermon uh, I've entitled Holy Terror. Holy Terror. We're going to actually look in chapter 1 at the vision that John receives of the risen and radiant Christ. And I want to help you grasp the significance of this vision to the letters themselves. These are letters from our Lord to His church And we want to understand something of the Lord behind the letters. Have you ever experienced a put down of not being given your proper place? Have you ever been at a ceremony or an event where people's dress or people's demeanor didn't fit the solemnity of the occasion? If so, then maybe you can identify with Alfred Smith, the one-time governor of New York State who walked out of an out-of-town convention in New York City because he felt that his office was being demeaned and the people of New York disrespected. There were a number of businessmen that had come into New York City for a convention. But during the um, events of that convention, there was a familiarity, there was a jovility that, that was out of place. And when Alfred Smith, the then governor of New York State, was to be introduced, the, the uh, host of the convention, half uh, inebriated himself, introduced the governor like this. Would you give a round of applause for a great guy? Alfred Smith stood He looked on his audience and he said, gentlemen, when I was a little boy on the east side, my father took me one day to a great civic parade. I held his hand tightly and thrilled as battalion after battalion of infantry marched past to stirring drum and martial music. Suddenly, my father stiffened. I felt almost electricity pass from his hand to mine. Son, he said, take off your hat. The governor of New York is passing by. I took off my hat. Gentlemen, the governor of New York bids you good night. And at that, he left the platform and walked out on the convention. As I've thought about that, I think this story suggests something. I think there may be times when God simply wants to walk out on congregations. 
having come through the front door of a morning service, he finds no reverence. He finds no contrition. He finds no adoring silence, no sense of eternity, no exalted thoughts of his person and his work, no splintering of pride, no bruising of our own self-sufficiency, no crushing of our own self-will. And he turns and leaves through the back door without ever being properly welcomed or properly worshipped. There are many church services where God saturates the place with his absence because he's uncomfortable at how comfortable those congregations have become regarding him and themselves. As he watches and as he listens and he walks among the candlesticks, he detects very little appreciation for his holiness and even less appreciation for the people's sinfulness. You see, many churches propose to meet God on middle ground, somewhere between his holiness and somewhere between their utter sinfulness. But listen to me, there is no middle ground. You can't worship God on average. In fact, I was struck this week to learn that God, according to the prophet Isaiah, will only meet us. God will only manifest himself. God only lives in two places. Look at Isaiah 57 and verse 15. God lives in one of these two places. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God's presence can only be known in one of these two places, the lofty place or the lowly place. If you and I want to know God, he'll meet us at a time when we are worshiping him in a high and a holy manner. When we have got our heads around the grandeur and the greatness of God, and we are expressing that as excellently and as enthusiastically as we can. Or God will manifest himself to us. God will come near to us as we bow our head in shame over the brokenness of our obedience, the coldness of our love and our lack of holiness. God only lives in one of two places, in the lofty place or in the lowly place. God can only be known either in holy transcendence or in gracious condescendence, but there's no middle ground. True worship is predicated upon a high view of God and a low view of yourself. And as we come into Revelation chapter one, we're gonna see that played out. That's exactly what takes place here as John's worship of God is invaded in a spectacular way. As an antidote to anemic worship, that tempts God to leave the church, I want us to study this passage because we, what we have here is an encounter by John of the once crucified, now glorified Christ. On a particular Sunday, John describes it here as the Lord's Day. The aged John is worshiping in the spirit on the Isle of Patmos. He's there for the testimony of Jesus Christ and his commitment to the gospel as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And God comes walking in to his worship experience. A voice sounds like the blast of a trumpet. And John stands to attention 
and doesn't about face. As he spins around, he's blinded by a vision of the unveiled, risen and radiant Christ. The sight is so staggering, he can hardly describe it. That's why he employs this word like again and again and again. The one I saw was like the Son of Man. The one I saw had eyes like a flame of fire. The one I saw had feet like brass. The sight of the Lord Jesus, unveiled and unedited, was so staggering that John can hardly describe his experience. And, and as a response to what he saw, he just falls to the floor as a dead man. This was Christ as he now was, not as he had once been. Jesus didn't stay put as the Jesus of Nazareth. This was a time of honor for Christ. His humiliation was over. According to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, God the Father has highly exalted him. The glory that once was his is now his again. After his incarnation, humiliation, obedience to death to the cross, entering the domain of death, the cross is behind him. The coronation is before him. He's no longer the servant king of the gospels. He's the king of kings to be lauded, worshipped within the church, and someday among the nations, the lamb has become the lion. John recognizes that, and we need to recognize that. We can't worship Christ on the middle ground anymore. He will only be worshipped. He will only be known in the lofty place or the lowly place. May we never tempt Christ to walk out on us because we have offended him, dishonored him, and disrespected him. Please notice John's response. It wasn't, hey, Jesus, what's up, dude? Okay, it wasn't. No, John fell over like a dead man, verse 17. He was struck by holy terror. There was a palpable sense of the power and glory of Christ, so much so that John could neither stand nor sit. There was only one proper response. It was on his knees with his face to the ground. And here we have loftiness and lowliness all together. Christ is being worshipped here as high and holy. John is down on the ground, recognizing how far short he has fallen in the light of that glory. This is an infinite God being worshipped by a finite man, a mortal in the presence of the immortal, a man whose heart is dark with sin in the presence of the glaring glory of Christ's holiness. Is it not a rebuke to the laissez-faire way we worship God in the modern church? We arrive late. If we arrive at all, we may have something better to do than meet with the risen and radiant Christ. And even if we get here late, throughout the service, we act as judge and jury on the song leader and the preacher. We caress our spouse's neck and allow our children to fall asleep on our shoulders in the presence of a thrice holy God. Something wrong with that. What's up? I'll tell you what's up. We have forgotten this is the Christ who stands among the candlesticks. Today, worship is marked by familiarity. John's was marked by fear. Today's worship is intended to stroke our emotions while John's worship experienced shattered his self-image and changed his life. 
we need to be captured by what captured John. Let me just show you the importance of this vision. I said we were going to study the seven letters, and you're saying, Pastor, when are you going to start? (laughs) Well, I think we can't get to the letters until we've understood the one who wrote them. You can't separate chapter one from chapter two and three. In fact, even after we've done this two-part sermon on the Lord of the church, we'll spend just one more sermon just looking at the whole context of these seven churches and the significance of the letters, and then we'll start to open the meal that was addressed, first of all, to Ephesus. But a couple of things about the vision. Why should we study this? Well, number one, it sets the direction and the tone for the rest of the book. Remember we saw at the very beginning, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, verse one uh, of chapter one. The whole point of this book is to unveil apocalypsis. It's to unveil. Maybe you've been at some civic ceremony where some statue or painting is about to be unveiled. And at a particular moment, the string will be pulled and the band will strike up a sound and everybody will have their eyes forward. That's an apocalypsis. It's an unveiling. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It wants you to get a new sight of Jesus. Because while it's the same Jesus of the gospels, He's different. He's different. He's no longer now being obedient to the cross. He's no longer now in a state of humiliation before men in the form of a servant. He has finished his work. The Father is pleased. The offering for sin has been made. And heaven has rejoiced at his triumph over the grave. And he is no longer mocked by man. He is now adored by angels, no longer veiled, but unveiled, no longer in a place of submission. He's now enjoying the exaltation at the right hand of his father on high. Oh, it's the same Jesus, but he's different. He who came the first time as the lowly carpenter's son, meek and muted in some ways, is to come a second time in power and glory. And in chapter one, the church gets a glimpse, a private viewing of what the world will one day see. In Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him, but only now the church sees him for who he is. That's why this vision is so important. In Acts 1 verse 11, what do we read? This same Jesus will come again. It's the same Jesus, but he's different. He's coming in power and he's coming in glory. There's another reason why this vision is so important. It presents Christ as the Lord of the church, the one who stands amidst the candlesticks. We read that, don't we? In in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. What are the lampstands? Well, it's explained for us at the end of verse 20. The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Chapters 2 and 3, which deal with the seven letters, mustn't become detached from chapter 1, which deals with the vision of Christ's intrusive and imposing presence within the church. He's the head of the church. He's the Lord of history. In fact, as you read these letters, we'll see soon enough, many of them pick up the threads of chapter 1. In fact, many of the letters are introduced with some aspect of this vision. Because these letters come with the authority of the one who unveiled himself to John and John unveiled him to us. And you and I have got to grasp that. It is the Christ who caused John some heartburn in holy terror who stands among us 
hidden to the naked eye, but seen by the eye of faith in the mirror of God's holy word. And do you know what he's doing? He's walking amidst the candlesticks, amidst the churches. He's listening to each sermon. He's watching each worshiper. He's noticing every act of service. He's registering every word of complaint. He's viewing each tithe. He's listening to each sermon and listing each act of service. In fact, we could entitle this passage, Jesus Goes to Church, because that's what we have before us. And it is no cameo performance by Christ. He is amidst his churches. In fact, we'll see before we're done this series that he threatens some of them with the removal of their lampstand. He's about to walk out on some of these congregations. It's possible to have church without Jesus. You know that? Without the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament, there came a point, a sad point, a low point in the life of the Old Testament covenant people of God when God's glory left the temple, right? And what was written on the gates of that place? Ichabod, the Lord's glory has departed. That's why this vision is so important. And thirdly, it's intended to help the people of God get perspective. This vision of the risen, radiant, reigning Christ is put strategically at the front of the book. Before all the horrors of subsequent history are unfolded before the eyes of its readers, this book reminds us that one stands amidst the candlesticks who someday will reign among the nations victorious. Leon Morris, the great Australian commentator, said the Christians were a pitiably small remnant persecuted by their foes. To all outward appearance, their situation was hopeless. But it is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen in its true perspective. That quote is simply saying, before you look at anything, look at him. And then what you're about to look at will have a different hue and perspective to it. Evil men will have their moment in the sun and then they will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. According to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, a brightness which is spoken about here in verse um, 16. Jesus is unveiled to us as one who shines like the sun in its strength. Truth for a time may be on the scaffold and injustice on the throne, but he who is faithful and true will have the last word because his name is the word of God. See, that which is confessed by a few in the church will be someday confessed by every person dead or alive on the earth or under the earth because Philippians 2 tells us there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, those on the earth and those under the earth, the living and the dead. And we've been given a private viewing and the church has been brought to see their Lord high and lifted up, reigning victorious. And it gives them heart and perseverance and endurance in the tough times. To this little flock in Asia, they were called to overcome and hold fast to their profession. I may have told you before of the interesting uh, story that comes out of the filming of that classic movie, Ben-Hur. Charlton Heston had trouble learning to drive a chariot but after much practice, he, he was able to control the chariot, but still had some doubts. And he shared that with Cecil B. DeMille. And he said, I think I can drive the chariot, but I'm not sure I can win the race. 
Cecil B. DeMille responded, you stay in the race and I'll make sure you win it. That's the intent of this vision. You stay in the race, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Now, John is overcome by majesty. The majesty and the marvel of the unveiled Christ was such that John simply and suddenly keels over, falls on his face as a dead man before the Lord Jesus. He's speechless, spitless. Some years earlier, John thought nothing of laying his head on the very chest of the Lord Jesus. But things have changed. It's the same Jesus, but he's different. He's a demanding, commanding figure. The glory that John got just a little snippet of on the Mount of Transfiguration now has come into full view. The brilliance and the beauty of Christ is stunning. The, the holy affluence of Christ's presence is, is um, something that, that is uh, awing John. This isn't the humble carpenter of Nazareth anymore. This is the one who has begotten the worship of angels and the fear of devils. We now know with the advancement of progressive redemptive history that there are two stages to the Messiah's work. The Son of Man comes in humility to die and give himself for us. But someday the Son of Man will come in glory with the clouds of heaven and he will establish an indestructible kingdom. That's the very thesis of the book of the Revelation. So no wonder this is the image that's set before John. Philip will be back in just a moment, but you're listening to Know the Truth. And as you can tell from hearing today's message from Philip DeCourcy, we're not going to sugarcoat the strong message of John's book of Revelation. It's a study that Philip has appropriately titled Holy Terror. If you tuned in late today, you can replay the message over on our website at ktt.org. You can also access messages anywhere, anytime when you add the Know the Truth app to your smartphone or mobile device. Just search your favorite app store for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy and hit the subscribe button. Now, Philip, you have something else to share. Hey, Philip DeCourcy here. Some of you have been listening for a while now, and you're familiar with me and this ministry. But I'd love to get to know who you are. Maybe you've never reached out to know the truth before, or maybe you have, but it's been a long time. Maybe you connect with us frequently, but you'd like to take your involvement a step further. Well, I'd love to get you connected with the team here at Know the Truth and welcome you on board as a Truth Ambassador. These faithful monthly givers give a monthly donation to support the gospel work we do here, and they also receive specially prepared resources and communications directly from me. You can learn more and sign up by calling 888-644-8811 or visit us online at ktt.org. Yes, when you sign up to become a Truth Ambassador, you'll receive the monthly Accord newsletter with special updates from Pastor Philip and a Truth Ambassador welcome packet, which includes recently written books by Pastor Philip and so much more. In June, you'll also receive the book Authentic Influencer by Jonathan Murphy when you become a Truth Ambassador or give a one-time gift of any amount to know the truth. You may feel like an ordinary believer, but God is a knack for using ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary purposes. Authentic Influencer is a book that encourages believers to walk with Barnabas, learn from God, and shape the world for Jesus Christ one life at a time. 
Readers will be challenged with inspiring stories and biblical wisdom and be inspired to influence the world for Jesus in practical and doable ways. You can request your copy by dialing 888-644-8811 or by giving online at ktt.org or giving your gift through the mail. Write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And if you'd like to stay up to date with timely news, events, and encouraging content from Know the Truth, then connect with us on social media. You'll find us on most major platforms when you search for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again tomorrow as Philip concludes the first half of the message titled Holy Terror. That'll be Wednesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.